as I was preparing for this sermon this week, I came across something I wanted to share with you that I think might be helpful in understanding what Paul is addressing here in 1 Timothy. And I think this is something that would probably be um, kind of an eye-opener. Let me read this to you. I'm sure everybody here is, is familiar with a heavily guarded facility in the state of Kentucky called Fort Knox. Fort Knox is used to store a large portion of the United States official gold reserves, okay? And below that structure itself lies a vault. And inside that gold vault that is lined with granite walls and even a blast-proof door that weighs 22 tons, various members of the depository staff have to dial separate combinations known only to them to get into it. Beyond that form of protection, the main vault door has another inner cell around it that keeps others from getting into that. The depository is protected by, in other words, numerous layers of physical security. There are other things besides the door itself and the building itself. There are alarms in the building. There are video cameras in the building. There are armed guards in the building. And even an army unit that is based out of Fort Knox is there to help guard this facility. There are even Apache helicopters there that will actually be called into use if someone tries to breach the facility. There's a training battalion of the United States Army Armor School located there. The 3rd Brigade Combat Team of the 1st Infantry Division is there. And when you take all these things together, you see that there are 30,000 soldiers there with tanks, armored personnel carriers, attack helicopters, and artillery there to protect that facility because of what's inside of it. Now, I think it's obvious that the contents inside that vault are precious, right? They're precious. And guarding that precious gold is taken very seriously by the people at Fort Knox. And I want to submit to you that the gospel and the church of Jesus Christ are more precious than the contents that are in that vault in Kentucky. And we as Christians are called on by God to guard both the gospel and the church as fervently as these men guard that facility. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul is telling us to do in 1 Timothy. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, begin in verse 1 with me, and I'll read down to verse 7. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love. The aim of his command, he says here, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these have wandered away into vain discussion, 
desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul is telling Timothy up front at the beginning of this letter that it is his duty to guard the saints by guarding the faith. In 1 Timothy, Paul gives Timothy instructions on how to do that all throughout the letter. He tells Timothy in this letter to preach the word to the church to guard them. He tells Timothy to instruct or teach the church through the word to guard them. He goes on to tell Timothy how to correct the church with God's word to protect them. He goes on and tells Timothy how to encourage the church with God's word. And he also goes on to tell him how to do it by living out God's word both personally and corporately. Now that's Timothy's job. That's Timothy's command, his charge. But it's not just given to Timothy. It's given to every member of the church. Because we have a precious and valuable treasure within us, which is the gospel. Timothy, as an elder, in particular, though, here, is called on by God to guard the gospel and the church pastorally. But he's also done throughout this letter this great, great illustration of how you do that practically by, by living out your guardianship and your love for the gospel as an example to the church so that they can follow you, and that you will all be good stewards of God's gospel that he has given to you as his representatives on earth. Now, I think that we need to take this seriously. I think as seriously as the soldiers at Fort Knox take guarding and protecting the treasure in those vaults, we need to take this more seriously. This is much more valuable. This has eternal value, eternal weight with it. And we have the privilege and the duty to guard it. And he tells us why we must guard it in this letter in the very beginning. He tells us that we must guard it because there are going to be some people who are going to come into the church who want to distort it. They want to distort the faith. They want to not only distort it, they want to distract Christians from rejoicing in the faith. And these same people do so because they have drifted away from the faith. That's why I think that in 1 Timothy 1, 1 to 7, he tells us, that the church must be seriously protected. Let me give you an outline of what I want to cover. In verses 3 to 4, Paul shows us why a protected church must be, number one, devoted to God's directions more than man's distortions. He tells us, or shows us rather, how a protected church must be devoted to God's directions more than man's directions. And he tells us why as we go through this. He'll tell us why basically is this. Because devotion to our divine guide, God's doctrinal directions, that divine guide will help us discern the dangers that lie ahead of us. It's interesting to me, a side note here, throughout this chapter in particular, Paul uses 
naval terminology constantly through this chapter. He even ends this chapter with a naval reference. And so I am borrowing from Paul's own use of naval references. When I say this, it is devotion to God's divine guide that will help us discern danger in the spiritual storms ahead of us. Now, secondly, in verse 5, he tells us why or shows us why a protected church must be directed by God's love, not selfish motives. He'll go on to tell us why. Basically, is this. It's because God's love is to be our divine compass that will keep us on, cur- on course in a spiritual storm. Have you ever been in a spiritual battle with someone? An unbeliever? A false teacher? Oh, it's hard to gauge your motives in those battles. You think that it's righteous, but you need God's love to ensure that it's righteous. That's what will be our compass to direct our hearts in these, these storms, these battles. In verses 6 to 7, Paul shows us why a protected church not must be something, but negatively must not be distracted by drifters within the body. We must not be distracted by drifters within the body. And he tells us why as we look at it. He tells us that these men, these drifters, these distractors will draw us away from the gospel, which is our divine anchor. Now, that's the outline. Let me get to the text. The first point I want to look at is going to be coming out of verses 3 to 4. And there again, we can see why the church must be devoted to biblical or doctrinal directions. And he tells us, as we look at it in a moment, he's going to tell us that it's because some people coming into the church and some people can come into our church that might be more devoted to their opinions and their views and their upbringing and their distortions more than they are devoted to doctrine. Look at verse 3 again. He says, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Anything that deviates from the doctrine that was given to them by the apostle. Paul knows this is important. He knows that they need this as their divine guide in the midst of this battle, in the midst of this storm of false teaching that's coming into the church. We must be grounded and established in the doctrines of the apostles if we are going to face these dangers and discern them accurately. That's what he's saying. He said, you must not forget that doctrine, God's doctrine about himself and to the church and for their good is going to be your divine guide to help you discern the dangers ahead. There in verse 3, he warns Timothy about these people. He tells them, look, they have wrong devotions. Their devotion is to, to basically these different ideas they're bringing in rather than submitting to the word of God. And they're going to come in like a storm. They're going to take the church off course if they are not stopped. As I mentioned last time when I was in Timothy, 
this is not an easy task for a pastor or a Christian in general to stop a false teacher, especially if he thinks he's on your side. This is difficult. But the precious and valuable gift that lies within this church must be protected. And so these men must be stopped. In verse 4, the first half, 4a, Paul points out what these people are devoted to. He basically says, look, these people are more devoted to distorting the faith through their myths and endless genealogies than they are to submitting themselves and devoting themselves to God's doctrinal directions. And we need to understand something about this. When, when people, any people in any age, when they depart from the authoritative word of God as their guide, opinions and imaginations then become authoritative in their eyes. That's what he's warning about here. They have drifted from the directions of God and now they form their own opinions and imaginations are taking over. These men are now chasing after myths and endless genealogies. And this is a universal and timeless danger that's given to us here in this passage. We still see people like this today. There are many famous preachers today who are more devoted to creative stories about the Scripture than they are to the Scriptures. These are the kind of people who come along and they're wise in the world's eyes. They're wise and their wisdom doesn't come from God, though it comes from the God of this world, Satan. They come along, they know that you can't sell Christianity if you don't blend in something carnal to it. And the only way that they can populate their theories and get them out there is to bring in enough truth mixed with error that they they look legitimate and people are attracted to them because they're so creative they're so imaginative they're so spectacular in their knowledge and people are drawn in by that yet all the while they have a undercurrent of selfish motives driving what they're doing there are just frankly some guys out there They graduated college. They didn't have a clue on what they were going to do with their life. And somebody said, you ought to go to seminary and be a pastor. And they thought, well, I'm a good speaker. Maybe I'll do that. They join up. They go. They come out. They never took heart to the word of God at all. It was not their anchor point. And they fill pulpits. And they bring in their own vain imaginations, mixing in creative stories, chasing after all types of things other than the word of God and they get a following and the false teacher and the carnal person loves that. They mix truth with error to gain followers. You you don't gain many followers if you stand up in a Christian church and you directly proclaim error. But if you put enough truth over that, that you look legitimate, people will follow that. That's an old trick. It goes back to the garden. The fallen angel. Lucifer, who became known to us as Satan, Diabolos, the deceiver. That was his tactic. Has God really said? Maybe he said this. I mean, he didn't deny that God said something. But he just brought in something else to it. He added to the words of God and took away from the words of God. That's what these men do. 
Now understand something. In verse 4, when you read this, sometimes as I was studying this, I was a little confused at a couple points, and I was thinking, okay, he's, he's, he's going after the false teachers. I get that, Paul. I get you what you're doing here. But that's not all he's doing. There's something else going on. He, he names some false teachers directly in this letter. But the certain persons that are included here are not just those shipwreck leaders in verse 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander, but it's also their followers. He's including the whole group. He's not accusing the whole group of being unsaved. I don't, don't believe that. I do believe he's going to accuse the leaders of these groups as being unsaved a little further down. But what he's saying is, when these men come in, they don't just come in and get the unsaved among you. They come in and they drag away others. They cause them to drift from the precious truths of the faith, the gospel. That's why I think that if we're going to classify these guys that he's talking about, the entire group, not just the pastors, but also those who are in the, the following of these guys, because listen, a lot, of the, a lot of discipleship goes on in the church, not from the pastor, but between the congregation members. And if they're following a false teacher, they're probably propagating more of that teaching than their pastors are among their friends that they fellowship with. And so these, this group as a whole, the leaders and the followers, I think need to be described according to what we see here as dangerous distractors. Dangerous distractors. Now we don't know exactly all the details about what these people taught and adhered to, but what's clear in Paul's command or his charge to Timothy there to stop these men in verse 3, what's clear is that they must have taught something that was contrary to the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. Now, I think that personally, I think that the reason we don't know specifically what these men taught, every detail about what they taught, I think the reason we don't know that is because that's the Holy Spirit's design. Yeah, I think it's his design. I think he intended that for a specific purpose. If we just thought it was talking about Judaizers, then how many Judaizers do you know? Well, probably not many. If we thought it was just talking about Jehovah's Witness, yeah, you might know a few, but you really don't know a lot, so we couldn't apply it to everyone. But what we see here is, I think, the Holy Spirit intending to give the church universal guidelines by which we can judge what must not be passed off as biblical teaching in the church. I think these are great guidelines that we see laid out, not just in this chapter, but throughout the book and throughout 2 Timothy as well. Now, even though I said that I don't know the exact details and they're not really given here, what we can see about this and the situation, these dangerous distractors, is that their errors are the same errors that mark out false teachers in every age. And you'll see that as you study through First and Second Timothy. Here in, in this study of First and Second Timothy, you can see principles being taught that the church must guard against in every age. Let me give you some, okay? This is what was going on. Look in one seven. In one seven, he says, These men desire to be teachers of the law of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now the Greek text in this is really interesting because basically He's backing up what he wrote in the book of Romans, chapter 8, about men who are carnal, not being able to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
Basically, it says these guys aren't even able to understand. And implied in that is they're not regenerate. But they want to be teachers of the law. And so what we see as a principle being taught that we must guard against here is we see Judaistic misuse of God's law that leads to legalism being brought into the church here. Instead of using the law to lead people to Christ, the fulfillment of the law, these men were burdening these people with rituals and rules and regulations that were Judaistic in nature, using the Bible, again, to gain a foothold in their hearts and their minds as legitimate teachers, but leading them away from the simplicity of the gospel. In chapter 4, go there with me, the first three, in the first three verses, we don't see Judaistic, <coughs> excuse me, Judaistic legalism. We see false asceticism, which can be somewhat associated with Judaism at this time. And I'll tell you what I mean in just a second. Let's read this. It says, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, drift. By what? By their devotion. Notice devotion comes up again. They're devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons though the, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What we see there is false asceticism being brought into the church. And what we see there is Paul attributes this drifting and this drawing people away to a devotion to this teaching rather than the gospel. We see that as being demonically inspired. This is a serious warning. What was happening here is they were bringing in what we would call proto-Gnostic teaching, asceticism, and a blend of Jewish mysticism called or rather connected with the Essenes. So we see Essene asceticism and proto-Gnostic asceticism being tied in, brought into the church, trying to say, if you want to be a real Christian, oh, you've got to abstain from these things. You can't eat these things. You, 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 can't, you can't get married. He says these men have consciences that are seared. Now, in chapter, or rather in Second Timothy, go there with me, chapter 3, we get a glimpse of what motivates such teaching and teachers. In 3, verse 1, he says, But understand this, that in the latter days there will, be, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, Proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Notice the next verse. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Avoid such people. What motivates these pretenders, these distractors, these dangerous distractors? Well, obviously, their pride, their sin, 
for lust of power. And they even would use the gospel and the church to get it. This is written to the church. These guys come in, look like they're godly. But this is what's really going on in their heart. They're lovers of self. They're self-motivated, self-driven to do what they do for their own gain and for their own praise. Now, Paul's going to contrast those kind of men with the stewards of God later on. But even though we see the motives of these men here, if you go over a page in your Bible to 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, we also see here what God ordained to stop such teachers and distractors. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. They will drift into stories and allegories and all sorts of interesting interpretations, but not the preaching of the word. No one, no one drifts into devotion to God and his word. No one drifts into that. You are drawn into that by God's power and his spirit. You are compelled to go there, but it does take devotion. But it doesn't take anything to drift away from it. All you have to do is stop. But he says, Timothy, you can't stop. These guys are coming in. People are going to be accumulating these kind of people to themselves. And the only way to stop this from happening in this church is for you to guard and protect the church by preaching and standing on the word of God and standing in the doctrines that are revealed therein and putting them into practice. Now, go back with me to 1 Timothy. In 1 Timothy 1, 4, the second half of 4, we see why such teachers and teaching and distractors must be stopped. Not just how to stop them, but why such teachings must be stopped. And let me, let me read this to you. Look, look, look what it says very closely in verse 3, he tells them to, he charges Timothy to stop these men from teaching different doctrine. And he says, basically, look, these men are devoted, in verse 4, they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, and in part B, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. So, what is the fruit of these men? What is the fruit of their devotion to myths and endless genealogies? speculations that's their fruit paul is saying this type of teaching that i'm talking about it's only going to promote one thing and that is speculations in other words doubts about the doctrines that have been given to you once for all in the gospel he says their speculations their storytelling and endless speculations 
only are going to promote doubt about the faith. And the reason that is, is because their teaching was distracting the church from the faith. Their teachings that we see outlined throughout the letter were distracting them from the gospel's power. Legalism, asceticism, those things that we see being mentioned here, they deny the power that is in the gospel by their very teaching. They have abandoned the power of the gospel. They have cut loose the anchor. These men are distracting the church from that great and glorious power of the gospel that we rejoice in. And they did it by promoting human effort to secure man's salvation. And they did it by promoting external guidelines to achieve sanctification. This still happens today. This happens in many circles and in many denominations today. And it must be stopped. This kind of teaching is dangerous. It's a distraction from the gospel of Christ. It casts doubt on his work. And it doesn't just do that. It doesn't merely cast doubt on Christ's work. It also elevates the teacher's authority. When someone can read the Apostle Paul's writings and say that baptism doesn't save because the, the Apostle Paul says we're saved by grace through faith in Christ's work, and then all of a sudden someone come along and say to them, oh, but brother, you've misinterpreted that. I'll tell you what Acts is talking about when it talks about baptism, and it's, it does save you. Let me show you why. And all of a sudden, he has these great arguments and these great apologetics for what his belief is that are not really driven out of Scripture, but really driven into Scripture because of his own opinions. And what that does is, if, you, if you've ever dealt with somebody like that, you find very quickly that the people around that are on his side are going, whoa, he is amazing. What a great apologist this guy is. And so by casting doubt on the gospel, by attacking gospel doctrines, the false teacher elevates his position. That's what was happening here at Ephesus where Paul is writing to Timothy. And so what he does here in part B is basically he contrasts these distractors with God's stewards here. The stewardship that Paul speaks about there in part B of this verse is a stewardship of that of a gospel teacher. Look with me at 1 Corinthians 9 to see what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians 9 explains to us what he means by stewardship. In 9 verse 16 of 1 Corinthians, he writes this, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. He's saying that God's stewards are given a command. They are under the command of God, not the command of the flesh any longer, like the distractors. They're given a command from God, and their command is this. They must and will, as a steward, teach and uphold the things that God has said in the Scriptures, no matter how difficult it may be, no matter how unpopular it may be, 
they are to do this. They are to teach what God has said in this Bible that we have before us. And they're to do it to guard the treasure of the gospel and God's people. They are to do it for the good of God's people. And they are to do it for the praise of God's name. That's not the case with the distractors. The distractors teach whatever will promote their own good and their personal praise. That's at the heart of every false teacher that you see on TBN. I'm straight up with you about that. There are probably 5% of the people on TBN that might be orthodox and good to listen to, but the rest, they fall into this category. You better have a divine compass directing you to discern what they are teaching. And you better have a right attitude when you have to deal with someone who is caught up in this too. We need to be patient toward them. All we have to do is think back to when we were unsaved and how patient maybe other Christians were to us at that time when we were fighting against their truth, fighting against what they were saying. False teachers are not beyond regeneration. The Apostle Paul was a false teacher when his name was Saul. But God saved him. Look at verse 5, 1 Timothy 1, 5. He, he writes here, this is sort of a parenthetical thought almost between these verses. He just wants to clarify something in Timothy's mind and also I think in the minds of the, the readers at the church there at Ephesus. He says the aim or the purpose or the goal of our command, our charge, is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. It's not like that of the distractor he mentioned with a seared conscience and polluted mind. But here in this passage, secondly, we can see why the church must be directed by God's love, not selfish motives. God's love, and Paul wants us to know this, he he wants us to understand this, that God's love must be the divine compass that not only keeps us on track, keeps us on course in the midst of the spiritual storms around us, but it also sets the course of our motives when we go into these storms with others. We don't want selfish motives to dictate how we do apologetics, how we defend the faith. I don't like to lose. I don't. Ask my wife, am I ever wrong? No. Ask my kids. They, they ask me to play video games, which I rarely do. But when I do, they might as well go home. I mean, that's just the way it is. Except when it comes to Halo. They kill me in that one. But I don't like to lose. And, and my selfish motive is to win. And I need God's love to correct the course in my heart when I'm dealing with those who are in error. Like I said, not all of them are heretics, spiritual leaders. Some of them are people who are just followers who got caught up in the storm and they're drifting. And they need our rebuke. And so in verse 5, Paul's making sure that Timothy and that church there knows that this rebuke of the distractors is, is being done ultimately for their good and God's praise. And he wants them to also know that if it's not done, these distractors and their motives for praise for themselves are going to always take the church off course and lead them to shipwreck. Verse 20. They know, as Paul is saying this to Timothy, my motives are pure in this. 
I am trying to protect you from their selfish desires and their greedy appetite for gain. If I don't protect you, he tells us later on, it will be like leaving someone with an infection that spreads throughout their body until it becomes gangrenous and it takes over. I had an experience with that not too long ago. I had an appendix that I didn't tend to very well. Left too long, it became gangrenous. Instead of having a one-day surgery, I got to stay for a week at the hospital being pumped with antibiotics because the poison from that infection spread throughout my body. He said it must be uprooted. But he's also telling them how to do it and why we must do it directed by God's love, not our own selfish motives like the false teachers, like the distractors. They're driven by their self selfish motives. He says, don't be like that. Be like this. This is what you must do. You've got to stay on course. God's purpose has to be the aim and the purpose for your heart in this rebuke. You must be motivated by God's command to go do this for the sake of the church, for the praise of his name. But you need to do it from a heart that reflects God's love to save those who are lost. In verse 5b, he tells us where that kind of loving motivation comes from. Basically, he says this. I'm not going to read each one of these. I mean, you, you see them there, right? The pure heart, the good conscience, the sincere faith. He, he tells us, look, this, this love, this coming out of you, going forth to rebuke and protect the church, this loving work that he is doing and calling him to do, he is saying is really supposed to be what it looks like when the fruit of God's love is rooted in your heart, a pure heart, a regenerated heart. And those who have the love of God in them, they want everyone around them to know and honor the Savior's saving work. That's why they go to the false teacher to rebuke, not just to win the battle. And this fruit of love is also marked out by having a cleansed conscience, a cleansed conscience, a good conscience. And that kind of conscience, that kind of awareness of what God has done to cleanse you makes you want to live a life in front of people that would reveal his forgiving grace to them in the gospel that they may be distorting. You may have an attitude that you want to win the battle, but you may need to be refocused, get readjusted by this compass of love. And remember that your conscience has been cleansed and your life has been changed so that you can give hope to those who are straying. Give hope to them that God will forgive even these errors. The fruit that he's also talking about here is an unpretended faith, a sincere faith. It means a non-hypocritical, a non-pretended, a non-play-acting faith, a real faith, a trust, a real absolute trust in God's word that changes your mind and makes you realize that even though I can't change the false teacher, the authoritative word of God that I carry within me has the power within it to bring life to the dead. It can certainly correct those in error. This is an unpretended faith. An unpretended faith is one that actually believes what the Bible says and follows what the Bible says. 
He says it's this type of love, this regenerated heart that we see coming out, this cleansed conscience that comes out of us, this unpretended faith that comes out of us. It's that kind of love that drives us not just to correct those in error, but to protect others from drifting into it any further, to stop them before they go into dire straits. And Paul says in verses 6 and 7 that that's going to happen if God's men, God's stewards, don't stop these dangerous distractors. In verses 6 to 7, this is my third point, we see why distractors within the body of Christ must be stopped. And they must be done motivated by love. It must be done, though, because their teachings are drawing away people from the divine anchor of the gospel. Now, I think here, in particular, in 6 and 7, he's moved away from the group and he's talking about the specific leaders, or the predominantly outward leaders, anyway. And he's showing us here, again, sort of a contrast between the fruit of God's steward and the fruit of these distractors, of those who are not anchored in the word or in God's love or in the gospel As we read verses 6 and 7, we see the fruit of those who are not anchored in these things. It says, certain persons, by swerving from these, the things that he just mentioned, the pure heart, the good conscience, the sincere faith, because they've swerved from the fruit of the gospel, God's love, they've wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. The terminology, again, is nautical here, but it also relates over to other things that we probably are familiar with. When we talk about hermartiology, we talk about missing the mark, we talk about sin. He says it's not that they were simply, you know, going down the wrong path and and then they kind of, you know, they, they got over on the right path and then they sort of missed the mark a little bit. Oh, man, I got close. No, they swerved out of the way. They weren't aiming at that mark. They left it. They cut the anchor loose to gain praise for themselves, to gather up those who would follow them. This is at the heart of every false teacher. This is the fruit of their teaching. It is self-promoting. It is full of vain discussions. Confident assertions, and it leads to confusion about the gospel. Verse 6 literally says they were wandering, and if you take it further down and try to break down that phrase even more, it means they were going off course. They were off course. They they cut the anchor so they could go where they want to go to get what they want to get, no matter who got hurt. This is not the sign of merely a confused Christian. This is a sign of a false teacher. This is that fruit being made manifest. Verse 7 shows us how their lust for power and praise resulted in them drifting away from the gospel because they, they, just, they were never anchored in the gospel in the first place. In John 17, 17, Jesus says of his stewards, of his people, and his high priestly prayer, he prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The good steward of God, the Christian, the believer, the pastor, the biblical pastor, they're anchored at the cross and in the cross. 
and to the cross. And never, never will they depart from the cross. They can't do anything but preach the truth. They can't deny the truth. They can't drift away from the truth without that anchor yanking them back. God's stewards are set apart and anchored as opposed to the false teachers. They're anchored by Christ's work. Now, that's really my three points, but I've got more. One more verse. I I was going through this, and it's relatively simple in reading through the text to see what's going on here, but I was thinking, what does all this mean for us? How do we use this? And what I think is important for us is something that's mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, there's universal guidelines here, and I think there's a universal and, and good and godly warning for us here about distractors. And, and actually, there are two types of distractors that I think I want to just kind of tell you about before my time is up this morning. And, and we see them not only in, in this letter, but also here today still plaguing the church. And, and the first type of distractors I want to mention to you are found in verses 4 and 6. Read in 4, these men are devoted to myths and endless genealogies. And in verse 6, these men have wandered away into vain discussions. Now, I classify these guys as Disney-fied distractors. They Disney-fy the gospel. They make it a story about themselves or about you and not about Christ. They are creative storytellers, these kind of men. And these kind of men, these Disney-fied distractors... They love to be known as innovators. That's their claim to fame. These kind of men are commonly found in the charismatic church and increasingly found in Baptist churches. These are the kind of men who are good at making illustrations and personal experiences the focus of their sermons, but not Christ. Now, understand that illustrations and personal testimonies are good. That's not the problem. But it's not the gospel. These men were using these kinds of things, or they do use these kind of things, to get a greater following. Again, illustrations and personal testimonies are useful, but they are not the gospel. I used one earlier, and it wasn't the gospel. It wasn't the message. The problem with the Disney-fied distractors is They love their stories and their ability to tell them more than the gospel story itself because they love man's praise more than Christ. This type of distractor often overshadows the gospel with his own personal experiences in a sermon or his clever analogies that help soften the rough edges of the gospel so he can sell it to more consumers. Have you been to a Christian bookstore lately? I don't even want to call it a Christian bookstore. It looks like a marketing campaign for about three popular heretics. But they've they've given you all kinds of clever stories and analogies to make them look legitimate enough to be in a Christian bookstore where they can sell their wares to many undiscerning consumers. The sad part of that is to me is that those are the kind of men... These Disney-fied distractors, these are the kind of men that are in the highest demand in much of Christendom today. They're in that kind of demand, I think, because many churches today have departed from a devotion to doctrine 
because of the itching ears that Paul spoke about earlier, because they want to hear what they want to hear, not what God has said. And we have to today as Christians still guard against this. And that's why I want to tell you this this morning, you must demand of your pastors to preach the word. Nothing else, nothing more. Keep our ministry balanced by coming to us if you hear us straying, drifting from this. You must be the ones who stand guard. We don't always notice it. But we're all capable of being drifted away into this by our own clever opinions and thoughts. And so we have to guard that. There's another type of distractor we must guard against, and he's mentioned This type is mentioned in verse 7. These are the kind of guys who desire to be teachers of the law. The key word there is they desire this. They want to be known as the resident expert teacher in the midst of the church. We have come in to save you all from your ignorance. They like to be praised like the Pharisees were. They want that first place like Diotrephes wanted. But they're not wanting to put Christ first to get there. They want to put their theories and their expertise forward. And I would call these men not Disney-fied distractors, but detailed distractors. Detailed distractors are common in both liberalism and legalism. And ironically, many of these kinds of distractors are found in apologetic ministries who are so focused on the details in their apologetic arguments that they leave Christ out of it. These men love to use the scriptures, not just stories. They love to use endless genealogies. They love to use scriptures to enforce their own personal opinions and theories. It's not letting scripture speak to their opinions and theories, but rather taking their opinions and theories to the scripture and finding endless reasons to defend what they have already imported to the scriptures. Again, these men love to be known as religious experts, confident of their own assertions this type of distractor leads the church into endless wanderings many of them take you on endless journeys into philosophical arguments or apologetic arguments to defend their own opinions and their own reinterpretations of god's word has god really said is the genesis account truly literal of course not let me show you 55 arguments why that can't be the case That's what I'm talking about. They love to do that because God's doctrines are not enough for them. Now, don't misunderstand what I mean here. Don't misunderstand what I mean about apologetics in particular. We have a lot of people in our church who love apologetics and are good at apologetics and who strive to excel at apologetics. But the problem here that we need to watch out for today, as in Paul's day, isn't apologetic expertise. That is a good thing, and that is even a command of Scripture. The problem today is that many of these men, these detailed distractors, love to use their apologetic arguments to promote their own expertise, not the gospel. They love to protect their own reputation not Christians. Now, 
Let me add something here at this point. One of the greatest apologists that I know, one of the greatest apologists in our church, illustrated to me what a true apologist will uphold and live out in his defense of the faith on Wednesday nights as I watched a young man on these steps right over here weeping and broken. I watched him in desperation seeking hope and answers. And then I watched Paul come alongside OB and embrace him and hold him and display to him the greatest apologetic for Christ's love that I have ever seen. That is what a true apologist will do. They will protect those that Christ loves. And they will honor Christ by sanctifying him in their lives, by putting what they believe about Jesus on display through their actions. And that is what Paul did. Listen, if if we aren't honoring Christ and loving Christ's people like he did the other night. Listen, we will all start to drift away from the gospel. Just like the distractors in First Timothy. If we do not remember what it is we are called to defend. What we are to protect. Church, if we don't carefully discern these things. And stop those who distract us from that mission. We will all be drifting. Let me say this. I, I know that all of us here in our flesh and because of sin, we are prone to drifting. Especially if we are left to ourselves. And that is why God ordained the local church. That's why we're here. To stop drifters. And to stop drifting By keeping our eyes focused upon Christ and not the distractors. Let me say this. If you are drifting this morning, or you feel like you have drifted away from your devotion to God and his word and his church. Let me say this to you this morning on behalf of your church family. We are here to help you get back on course. But it won't necessarily be easy. Drifting is easy. It requires no effort. It's easy. No devotion is required to drift. It will take devotion if you want to be anchored, though. It will take devotion to studying and living out God's word in the local church, in your life. And I realize that is not easy, but that is, again, why we are here, is to help anchor you in the gospel. And on Christ and his love. I know it is easy to drift. We're all, again, prone to this. It's easy for us to drift into the current of sin. Because we know that it does satisfy us, at least for a moment. But Paul reminds us, the Apostle Paul reminds us here in 1 Timothy that that kind of drifting will always end in a spiritual shipwreck. I recognize that it's also very easy for us to drift away from honoring Christ, even in good things. It's easy to drift away from honoring Christ, even in our apologetic arguments, when we are so distracted by a lust 
in our flesh to defeat our opponents, that we do not point them to Christ. That we do not exalt and honor Christ in the way in which we argue for the gospel. I also know that it's easy to drift even while you are sitting here this morning. Even while you are listening to sermons, it's easy to drift if you're so distracted by your own pride that you think that this message does not apply to you or that you're unwilling to actually apply it in a practical way in your life when you walk out of this building. Church, it's easy to become distracted today even as we sit in the church. Church, I believe we may be the most distracted generation of all time. We have more resources than any generation before us, yet we are possibly the most dissatisfied and drifting Christian generation of all time. Let me tell you why I think that's the case. I think that's the case today because many of us today in the church are far too satisfied with being one inch deep and three miles wide when it comes to devoting time to Christ, me included. So let me leave you with one last piece of instruction. Let me leave you and me with one last piece of instruction. Let's do this this week. Let's put away the distractions. Let's turn off all the distractions in our lives Primarily, let's turn off our phones and our computers. Let's turn them off. And let's get out a copy of God's Word and get alone with Him and devote some real time to Him in prayer. Devote real time to Him in studying and reading His Word and feasting on His love. Church, I really believe this is what God ordained to protect us from drifting. I believe this is what God has ordained to keep us from drifting personally and to protect us corporately from the spiritual distractions that rage all around us today. Let us pray that we would be driven to God's word today and to apply the truth that we learn and love so much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for this opportunity, God, to open your word and to see how you, you anchor us to Christ and how you keep us from drifting when our hearts are devoted to your word. And I thank you, God, that you have given us this word today to help us discern distractions and discern distractors and to stop them as they come into the church so that we would stand firm in the gospel and that we would live out the gospel when we even stop our opponents. God, I pray that you would soften our hearts and keep us tender to remember that we were also your enemies. But in your love, you exposed us to the truth and you brought us to see the glorious work of Christ. You opened our eyes by confronting us in our sins and sending those to us that would do it with love. God, I pray that you would help us to be those people today so that we would not drift and that we would be able to honor Christ's name and remember our calling as your people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.